This is the Cast Iron Theatre podcast, recording live at the Duke of Wellington. We're in Brighton, the Duke of Wellington in Brighton at Sweet Venues. This is where we talk to uh, the finest and most wonderful people in um, stand-up, comedy, uh, media, or indeed seagulls who appear to be now clucking outside our window. And uh, we're very excited. Uh, Cast Iron is not going to be in Brighton for the month of August. Oh, you may well, oh, you may well, oh, we're going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe. Before that, we're going to the Reading Fringe with one woman alien, the movie Alien, told in one hour by one woman, and we're taking that same show up again to the Edinburgh Fringe, also at Sweet Venues, at the Grass Market, all month, except for Wednesdays. And there, we're also doing Year About Summer, which is the story of um, Frankenstein, uh, Mary Shelley, and all manner of things on uh, that uh, fateful summer uh, over 200 years ago. Uh, and so that's kind of the advertising um, uh, aspect of what I want to talk to you about. Are you ready for our guests? Ant McEwen and Rachel Shora! Yay! Hello both, how are you both? Hello, good, thank you. Yeah, great, like, hot. It, 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 I think I just read recently this is the most sustained hot weather that England has had since about the 1920s. Not just the 70s, but the 20s. Um, I feel sad for kids, actually, who, you know, who are like five or six, who um, this is what they think summer is like. Oh, they're going to be disappointed. They're, they're going to be so disappointed, year. aren't they? No, just wait until winter. That's when the real disappointment comes. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get snow. What, 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 um, the, oh, we, I'm start with a very bold question then. What thus far, you don't have to ask it honestly if it's too harsh a question, what has been your greatest disappointment so far? Oh, <laughs> like usually if I was doing the comedy contest, I'd say my kids, but then. <laughs> um, like my greatest disappointment actually is uh, myself for a number of years. Um, because I was kind of at a point for about 10 years where I was doing the same job. Uh, I, was, I was working as a forklift driver and I wasn't very happy with what I was doing, but I did nothing to get out of that. So I, I would constantly complain about the position I was in, but I wouldn't do anything about it. So yeah. now looking back at that, I, I just kind of feel like, uh, yeah, like, uh, as honest as I can be, I, I am my own biggest disappointment. But something like that is quite a difficult thing to get yourself out of, well, even mm-hmm. if we're not talking about um, depression or a small D or um, a big D. Um, that whole idea of believing yourself more, which is a very easy thing to say, or if you don't like that job, get an easy job, but that's another job. But that's not that easy, is it? And you can find yourself in that trench for quite a while. Yeah, um, I got lucky in a number of ways. Uh, this is gonna sound strange when got dropped from the job. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, at the time, it was the worst thing that could have happened to me, but at the same time, it was the best thing because it forced me into a position where I had to do something with myself. Yeah. I had to change what I was doing yeah. myself and get myself into a position where I could enjoy working again, whatever aspect of work that would have been. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about the work that you do now, but um, at least you'll now historically always get to say, I used to be a forklift driver. Exactly. That, that's, that's got some degree <laughs> of interest. Uh, Rachel, um, what disappoints you? What has been your disappointments? I'm, I'm glad I had thinking time, yeah. but also now the pressure is on because Ant has answered honestly. Um, so you, you, you can lie, nobody will know. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that I didn't grow up to be in My Little Pony, that one. Oh. Um, but actually, uh, honestly, I think when I went into performing, I really wanted to be one of those people who was kind of a, a wonderkind and just like naturally good at yeah. it and everything immediately fell into place. Um, 
and now that I'm a little way into my performance career, I'm kind of past that point where I can be brilliant at it immediately and have yeah. realised I actually have to do some work, which is disappointing. Do you find that, because I know a number of people who have a similar sort of approach that, well, what I write is brilliant, so that's it. <laughs> um, uh, do you find the fact that it might need a bit more work, do you find that annoying or genuinely offensive? Um, oh, God, editing. That for me, there's a kind of messy middle point in any yeah. creative process where I don't really know what it is or what I'm doing. Um, and I used to hate that. It used to feel so uncomfortable until I kind of had gone through it a few times and realised how good it feels once you've gone through it and you're on the other side yeah. of it and you know what you're trying to say. Um, yeah, so... It's not as uncomfortable as it used to be, I think. I guess at that point, the, the, the boring, annoying bit of uh, writing that that actually can be pleasurable in itself and it feels like hard work. I mean, I never loved <laughs> the hard work. And actually, what I do as a way of dealing with the, the kind of hard bit is I procrastinate ferociously yes. and, and kind of hope that the muse will show up and, and inspire me. So there's an awful lot of kind of... I don't know, I went to Primark recently and bought false nails because yeah. it felt really important to my creative process. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a bit more, more different type with that. Um, there for performing. When, oh. I, when I eventually finish that poem, it will look fabulous. It's like a reward system. Yeah, yeah. motivation. If, you had, uh, if, your mo- if your muse could be physicalised in some way, what would your muse look like? Oh. Or who would your muse be played by? And just to give you the heads up, and you get thinking time on this, because you're going to get the same question. Um, what would my muse look like? Definitely glitter involved, yeah. um, because that feels important to my creative process. There's often a lot of glitter yeah. and sparkliness. Um, so <laughs> glitter, um, maybe a kind of tinsel hair. So it is going to be a um, My Little Pony thing. I was, I'm trying not to say, but basically, yeah, my muse is a My Little Pony, um, the white one with the rainbow-coloured hair. Um, there's a, there's the genuinely a, a gasp of enjoyment from the um, audience. Uh, and wh- who is, or what would be your muse? Pound shop worker. Oh, yeah? Yes, definitely. Because you, you've got to be creative as a pound shop worker, genuinely. Uh, who comes up with the idea to have the dog food and dog treats right next to the kids' toys? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I don't know, really. Um, it, my muse would, would probably be uh, anyone who's very inspired or... Uh, outward going like um not kind of letting anything hinder them so like i read a lot of books uh like autobiographies of people who have kind of chased the impossible dreams and whatnot and um yeah so that kind of uh image i guess yeah Uh, we often on our podcast we have uh, a couple of guests who are either uh, in, in exactly the same sort of work or they're quite deliberately in opposite pieces of work and they quite often may not have met but I was um, just, uh, when we were setting up I overheard your conversation you actually have met uh, for, where was that? We were both in the Hove Grown Festival oh, yes. last year yeah. yeah yes well I wasn't in the Hove Grown Festival itself um, I was showing support and I believe I was uh, you I, did some good stand-up I definitely saw you do stand-up uh, yes, I might have done some showcase shows, yeah. but I think I was mainly 
uh, doing the corporate event, the the big uh, open day that they have for Hope Grown, where yeah. they have a few of the acts come and show what they can do. And I remember, like, I had to be my best. I had to be professional in presenting <laughs> and, and like explaining well how the festival like is set up and the opportunities that they provide and I remember there was one act that come up on the stage and proceeded to grab me back onto the stage and ply me with drink right in front of a whole bunch of reviewers and everything and it was just like oh but yes we we met uh, it was a uh, it was another poet it was um Joe 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 Clark um or Joseph C Clark uh, basically, he was doing a show called Drunk with a Pen, and I'm not a massive fan of poetry, but I tell you something, I was absolutely taken by not just Joe's poetry, but your poetry as oh, well, you. Um, because you were supporting him that yes, night. That's so right. I, I think that was the main place that I actually met you. Um, and yeah, I remember that evening very well because it was just, uh, it was fantastic. It opened my eyes to what poetry really could be, that it wasn't just reading, it was a performance. As a whole, and Joe, Joe is such a kind of heartfelt poet. I yeah. love his poetry. It, it is what's really good about poetry, in my opinion. And you were saying that that's your sort of your introduction uh, to poetry, but uh, you've you've got into it a bit more since you were speaking before. Um, um, when I do my research on all your social media and stuff, you were talking about. Um, one of the best poems you've you've um, encountered. Oh book. yes, there was a friend of mine. He he writes. Uh, I suppose avant-garde, uh, almost comic-like poetry. Yeah. Um, he, he's a guy named Kurt Wilde, and he wrote a poem uh, called Masculinity, and it's all about the aspects of being a man, uh, what, what really encompasses that. And it's essentially just uh, three minutes of him reading in the voice of Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> lines from Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Um, it's brilliant. Um, th- this poem, Masculinity, look it up on YouTube. It's absolutely fantastic. His impression of, <laughs> of Arnold Schwarzenegger is impeccable. For, for you, because um, oh, the various careers and stuff you had, uh, what is masculinity for you? And is it relevant to, to you? Yes, definitely. Um, masculinity for me, certainly in the past few years, is being okay with uh, showing a certain side of myself that for years was almost deemed not okay, or in my head deemed not okay to show. So to be uh, vulnerable and, and, and to, to be okay with expressing feelings and stuff like that. And that's something that has really come out in the news and, and in various different projects and help for people, uh, certainly in line with depression and things like that recently, the past few years. So uh, all that kind of stuff resonates with me because that to me is what masculinity really is yeah. in this day and age in 2018 is about being okay with uh, not just being a man but being a person. Like, so it has the same kind of aspect of, of, of femininity in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And we, we talk a lot about, um, in what I ne- continually boringly call the current social climate, <laughs> about what uh, masculinity is and also um, women having um, more of a voice, whether it be on stage or in media. But that isn't quite the same question as what in today's society femininity is as mm. compared to masculinity. Because we we approach those words differently. Hmm. 
I, I'm meant to answer that, am I? <laughs> I, I, I yeah, you are, you're going to now speak for all women. Here I sit in my flowery, flowery dress, talking about, for, uh, having talked about My Little Ponies, Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm going to try and balance that out by, as I was listening to Ant talking about how he's kind of embraced his vulnerability, I was thinking about how, as an adult, um, and since kind of maybe my mid-twenties, I have started to be less of a girly girl and really embrace a far more adventurous side of myself, which I, yeah, I actually, I have a co lot of conversations with female friends where they kind of, they tell me I wouldn't dare to do the things that you do. Yeah. I kind of surf and hike and, and I think for women there is still, we are still socialized to be afraid and to not engage in those more I don't know, slightly dangerous activities, yeah. but there's something there's something about that that so informs me as a performer. I think it makes me so much more willing to risk take the fact that I'm doing that in my personal life as yeah. well. Yeah, and is that also associated with um, being more adventurous? Is that being willing to uh, to have a lack of apology, to not apologise for doing that and? Do you know, actually, for me, it's more about fear. I used to be a proper scaredy cat. Yeah. I used to... So I learned to snowboard, and when I started learning to snowboard, I used to just stand at the top of runs and kind of shake and go, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm definitely going to die. Um, and through learning to snowboard, I realised that I probably was not going to die. Um, that actually it wasn't very useful to spend all that time standing there getting worried it, yeah. it didn't help it it just was a really uncomfortable yeah. thing to do and it also taught me to like relax because I think fear tenses you up yes um and you have to just take a breath and and stop assuming that every little bump in the road is gonna kill you yeah metaphorically or yeah. actually yeah <laughs> I think the thing yeah. with fear you know we three are on stage uh, and I'm sure the audience will agree we look like we're in control and we look like we know what we're doing <laughs> um, but the, the problem with fear uh, well the, the secret about fear is nobody else cares uh, and you know it's an overused phrase about you know fake it to make it but it's got a, a certain degree of truth to that in terms of if you can be quite bold even if you while you're being bold you're announcing it or going I am quite scared but doing it without apology just going celebrating it the, your audience whether that be the person you're speaking to or an actual audience immediately relaxes and go oh okay good good so we're all in this together whereas mm. if um, uh, over compensating for fear or going I'm not scared I'm fine it's you then that becomes very tedious and boring um, I can't think of what social figures I'm thinking of who have been hmm. in the news this week that I'm thinking about um, <laughs> so um, pretending they aren't scared and are playing all macho I can't think of anyone like that who's in the news at no, the moment no 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 <laughs> um, and you were speaking uh, Rachel about um, that you used to be as you said a, a scary cat and uh, then you've um, either in a met met an effort to change that, or just by acting, you've you have taken steps to sort of then um, change that, um, and so you're a different person now than you may have been in your early twenties. Which is the most subtle segue I can make <laughs> into uh, the name of your show. Yes, ten mistakes every girl makes in her twenties. Which is um, there's going to be uh, audience members that are going to have, depending on what they're bringing, what baggage they're bringing, they're going to have a reaction to what sort of show they might expect from that? Yeah, that's 
been interesting because the title of the show has always provoked people to tell me about their 20s yeah. and when I was creating the show those conversations I were having shaped what the show is so the show is now I do a poem and then I invite the audience to tell me about their mistakes yeah. um, because what you realise that the title is kind of wildly inaccurate my 20s were very specific to me and what the audience always come back with is how their 20s were different um, although it's always interesting because there are a few threads of commonality that yeah. come up there are an awful lot of women who ended up in careers that they were kind of pressured into and often caring professions yeah. and, and we have a lot of conversations where people say the path I took was not the path I really wanted yeah. to take at what point in the show, as in literally the um, the half hour mark, the twenty minute mark, do, do you invite audience members to tell you their mistakes? Oh, I should know this. <laughs> <laughs> um, after the third poem, so that's probably about fifteen minutes. Oh, in. Okay, so that's quite early. Um, how? Are, are, are they warmed up enough to be sherry sherry or oh I um I start gently we start with kind of easy um easy questions yeah. like did you ever injure yourself stupidly in your 20s yes. I picked up drinking injuries at a ferocious rate yeah. <laughs> um so we start with the easy questions and yeah. then as as the audience as the show goes on um I kind of slowly turn the heat up and start yeah. asking questions which are you maybe couldn't ask them cold, okay. a little more uncomfortable. I was about to ask this, but I, I feel that um, um, it should be your privilege. Would you like to ask Ant uh, that, the early question? Ah, Ant, have, did you injure yourself in any stupid ways during your 20s? Uh, far too many times. Yeah. <laughs> tell us one, tell us one. Oh dear, where do I begin? Um, shall, so I, shall I give you one to beat? Go on. No. My personal favourite that I've ever had from the show was someone who was in their 50s, and as I'm talking to him, I can see that his two front teeth are different colours. And then he starts telling me this story about him in his early 20s in a shopping trolley, going down a hill, which hits a curb, shopping trolley tips over, he face plants onto the curb, loses a front tooth. So the reason his two front teeth are different colours is because one of them is a false tooth. Lifelong mark of his injury. Yeah. That, that <laughs> sounds... What tooth market was it? Oh, <laughs> I didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite posh. It could have been oh, a waitress. waitress yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does sound very much like my teenage years. Uh, every single day, we were pretty much doing that. Me and my friends. Um, that was during the the time of uh, the great television broadcast that was Jackass. Oh, uh, so like Oi. teenagers and it was like uh, you know they say don't try this at home but uh, there's a Sainsbury's around the corner um, so yeah we, we would do all kinds of stuff like that but I think um, some of the most interesting injuries I got was um, and this surprises people when I say this when I used to do pro wrestling Mm. And so I got all kinds of bizarre injuries, but one of, one of the strangest ones was during a match we used a cheese grater. Um, now the way there's, I'm letting this is a bit of an in secret now because there's a way of using a cheese grater which sounds strange in a wrestling <laughs> match <laughs> that it doesn't hurt, but it looks like it hurts, and it's basically that you push it down uh, so the serrates like aren't oh. cutting you. But this guy. Uh, got my head and pulled oh. it up. Uh, he then cracked me over the head with it. Oh. So that gave me a concussion. 
and then while I'm trying to figure out where I am, he then puts a guitar between my legs and does what's called a drop kick, oh. where he runs and puts both his legs out, bang, and yeah, I wasn't too happy. Oh. Uh, we ha had a kind of rule uh, within wrestling, an uh, unwritten rule, you look after each other. Mm. Um, and that guy was not looking after me. <laughs> <laughs> God, that must have left a good scab, the cheese gracing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I kind of look like, uh, I guess, something like out of the blob. <laughs> <laughs> But we've spoken about Sainsbury's, we've spoken about Waitrose, uh, of course, other supermarkets are available. Um, well, I, ha I had a, a weird couple of injuries in my late 20s, um, and they were one week after the other, and they both involved the hospital, which was confusing for the people who worked in the hospital. And um, one week, one, one Saturday night, there was a party going on, and people were sort of, a, a group of actors, in actors um, <laughs> and lots of sort of um, uh, and, s and somebody was um, had like um, sort of like a sort of craftsmen and stuff and was doing like wavy wavy stabby stabby sort of action and stuff and did a thing where they sort of like bounce their fist off my chest uh, like that so it's like a good punch and sound like that and I sort of um, because I'm a bad actor as well I sort of dropped to the floor went out oh, you know I've been hurt and stuff and somebody else joined in went oh god blood is actually blood oh good somebody's actually uh, joining you, you can see where I'm going with this um, there was actually blood and uh, the, the, the mood of the party suddenly went very dark and um, we <laughs> how had... long did it take people to realise the third guy wasn't joining in <laughs> um, it probably was only a few seconds um, but at least a few seconds yeah and um so got uh, taken to a hospital and i um i lived in croydon at the time and at the, i think the name of the hospital has changed since um but the name of the hospital then was mayday <laughs> and um I only now realise what a really fucking ridiculous name for a hospital that is. <laughs> stab injury, stab injury, mayday, mayday. And so we got that and I got stitched up and whatever. And then the following week, um, I was directing um, and somebody had to do a stage fall. And they, they were a bit awkward about how they did it. So I felt that I needed to demonstrate a stage fall. And the problem about my demonstrating of a stage fall was that I did not demonstrate it well. <laughs> and I didn't put my hands out to break my fall. And so the first thing to hit the floor was my chin. And I split oh. it. And back to May Day I went. <laughs> and uh, at some point, uh, the consultant or the nurse or whatever came out uh, with a flip chart and went, you, you don't look like you got a stab wound. Don't you know that was last week. That's my notes from last week. And then they went away and they came back out again. Somebody else came out with a different or the same... Board. And again, when that's not a stag wound. No, no, no. And three times somebody came out with the week old um, chart. lip chart. Yeah, so that's um, what's happening to me. Um, were, you, were you not tempted to go, no, it, there is a stab wound? Or you finally give up after a few attempts yeah. and it's just like, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me up. It's not like I want to cosplay as the operation game. <laughs> Um, you, um, you're not always performing in venues like this, particularly for the current show. No, um, at the moment with 10 Mistakes I am touring around people's living rooms yeah. um, because it is a show which is inspired by the kinds of intimate conversations that women have, so it felt appropriate to do it in the places where women have intimate conversations yeah. and 
I've just started doing this tour, I've done the first two shows, and having performed it in fringes before, I'm so excited about doing it in living rooms, because actually this gut feeling I had about doing it in domestic spaces yeah. feels like it's really paying off. There's a, a feel that's amazing. Is this a different show? Even if the words haven't changed? Um, well, I am horrendous for editing and editing and editing things. So actually, since last time I did it in the Fringe, um, when I started rehearsing it again, I started changing the order of the poems yeah. and pulling work out. So it is a slightly different physical, the kind of words have changed slightly. It feels like a truer version of the show. Yeah. It feels like this is this is the place the show was always heading and this is the first time that the show has been the properly finished thing it was meant to be. We had a chance to chat about this briefly uh, early in the week and we spoke about the, the shape of the show and how it sort of um, finished and stuff and how the audience might feel at the end of the show. Um, I'm avoiding spoilers, obviously. Um, but that's the experience an audience member might have if they've paid their ticket to come to a venue where the bar attached and whatever and they get to go out into the fresh air afterwards might be a different experience from if it's literally their safe space and the the person who has to go is you. Mm. And I've always been fascinated by that in terms of how much does that inform now, especially if you're editing it as you go along, etc., how much that informs the show and how much you can wrangle that. So something that I've loved with the first couple of performances, which wasn't planned but has just happened, is um, is I hang around afterwards. Yeah. Um, I mean, no one's no one's kind of awkwardly tried to usher me out. There's been a very... Read the room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're switching the lights off. I'm still there demanding more wine. Coffee? <laughs> um... No, both shows have had this kind of beautiful after party where um, having had the more formal kind of I do poems bit, there's then a bit where it lapses into what the show is based on, where it's just women kind yeah. of sitting around together, drinking and eating and talking. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that really interesting, especially with the first performance I did, because it was a group of women aged kind of 60s to early 80s so two generations difference from me and it was like they got their turn because I'd I talked about my 20s and asked them about theirs but then they got to ask their questions of me and they really wanted to know about dating yeah as a young person today and how how we meet boys so uh so I had to tell them about tinder Oh. which was very different to they met their husbands at the youth club in their yes. teens playing ping pong yeah no, I think if you mention ping pong on Tinder, oh God. Uh, no, I, I'm not even sure. <laughs> a lot of swipe left on that. Yeah. I don't know what swipe left means. It's uh, entirely not my thing at all. I'm, I'm trying to remember which is the good way. That's that's no. Yeah, well, say, yeah. ping pong at youth centre does sound like a microcosm for Tinder. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, for you, Ant, where do going back to a, a, a thing we were speaking about earlier? Um, where do men traditionally have their intimate conversations? Um, well, obviously the standard thing would be the age-old tradition of down the pub. Yeah. But for me and my friends, it, it's very much 
we try to arrange a group meet up where we get to play poker yeah and we just kind of talk about any kind of things that are on our mind and that and we, within about an hour or two we, we've comfortably gotten to a point where we're sick and tired of hearing each other's problems <laughs> so we get to play in Pokemon um, but yeah I think it's very much uh, still a kind of pub mentality yeah. for the guys like I have to go to a space where and, and this is a strange thing where the women aren't there like there's still this attitude mm. like where there isn't a hindrance or where brandy and cigars sort yeah, of like like uh, you know um it's a strange one and there's even this almost like brick wall if you have your specific kind of nights yeah where like you go out with the guys and then uh the the kind of intonation of having uh your partner join you on those nights because yeah. those nights are almost sacred like, or they become sacred in your head, and then you realise when you do invite them on, along that you have a brilliant night anyway. Yeah. So yeah. it it becomes a little bit ridiculous, but there is still that that in the air that is still there, you know. How is it for your formative years? Because arguably, and I'm I'm happy to be sort of uh, argued on this point mm-hmm. for women, the having an intimate conversation with your girlfriends kicks in quite early and doesn't manifestly change whereas I think it's a bit more of a difficult ask for boys uh, is it like you're, you're of the like the gaming computer generation sort of vibe would it be that sort of thing or um, I wasn't really myself so I can't comment on that side of things but certainly um, in regards to opening up to the partner like for me it was uh, it took me a number of years um, it was it's the whole thing of like when someone says like you're right and you, you always go yeah yeah. Like everyone does that. Like, and, and no one ever goes like, you know what? And <laughs> so it was very much like that w- in regards to my relationship. Like, being asked like, is everything okay? Yeah, it's fine. Like, and, and it wasn't. Like, there, there was always something it's niggling, something. but I would just hold on to it. Yeah. And so it took me a number of years to really build up and a lot of talking, a lot of her talking, <laughs> and yeah. saying, saying like, you know, you need to open up. Um, so yeah, I'm now at a point where I feel a bit more comfortable about talking about that yeah. thing but I mean we've been married for like seven plus years yeah. so uh, and then we, we've been together since I was uh, like I think we were 16 so I'm 30 now so we've been, been together a long time yeah. and it's taken me this long to get to that point yeah um Rachel you were speaking about you know uh, the show is exploring those sort of environments where it's uh, women sort of speaking about conversation and stuff and we again we spoke about this um, uh, earlier in the week mm-hmm. and we spoke about sort of when we're reading books or whatever for which whether you're male or female depending on what the book is you're acutely aware that you're not the audience intended you're uh, not the target audience it's not for you and yeah. it's not for you and it just occurred to me I we, we spoke about that that you know it's possible that a show like yourself is not necessarily for someone like me. But it just occurred to me that I, it never occurred to me to think that I might not be in the audience. Um, is it uniformly women in the audience or is there a mix? Um, that's an interesting Even question. by choice or design. Because <laughs> as, as a feminist and someone who's quite kind of committed to equality, it feels categorically against what I believe to go, boys aren't allowed here. <laughs> um, and it was so interesting listening to Ant talk that we do still have that weird segregation of the sexes when mm-hmm. it comes to talking about feelings. It's bizarre. Um, 
What I found really interesting when I performed the show with a kind of gender-balanced audience was how it was an entirely different animal because the first couple of performances I did, it's got girl in the title. People tend to assume it's for women. It tends to draw a a female audience. But I have done a few shows that are gender-balanced and um, it's the men who answer the questions so you don't hear from the women as much as you do. Um, They tend to answer the questions with a joke. Um, So I think one of the questions I ask is, if you could give your younger self any advice, what would you give? Which normally is quite a kind of tender, heartfelt moment. Um, And I'm thinking of Brighton Fringe last year where this voice pipes up and goes, buy shares in Microsoft. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a nice, easy um, laugh. But. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's a laugh, but it, it does mean that the trajectory of the show is different. And you um, have to work harder to... Well, it, it's an interesting show for that, because I think the audience bring brings so much of what the show is, and so as the performer, you have to catch, catch what's thrown to you, and if, if it is a performance where it's not going to that intimate place I think it would be a mistake to try and take people somewhere that they didn't want to go yeah. with you yeah um, indeed uh, and you, you um, as a, a male voice uh, that, that's um, a part of your career literally you, uh, you're hosting a radio um, show and you, you do interviewing how much do you, you were talking about uh, the art of being professional earlier how much uh, do you have a persona for those voices? Is it a different voice when you're interviewing MPs than when you're doing uh, the loud lunch? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I've kind of come across a very difficult point with that as well because where I also do the comedy shows and I host those and so I've got a voice for those which is very similar to the Loud Lunch live shows that I've done then I have another radio show that I do which is Classic Rock Jukebox and I have a voice for that that's a lot more kind of uh, quieter um, and and more reserved Um, that goes out in the evening so it works well for that audience and then like you said interviewing MPs have this air of professionality within the voice or try to and then I suddenly realise this uh, block that I come up against which is how are people going to view that in regards to um, very much like can they take you seriously as a journalist and an interviewer if you're also a comedian can they take you seriously uh, or, or it sounds silly, can they take you seriously as a comedian Mm. if you're doing that side of things? So it's something that I'm trying to work on at the moment and find a gentle kind of, to a degree, middle ground where it's still acceptable for me to go out and interview these kind of uh, people like the MPs and um, councillors and whatnot and still be able to perform with that voice so essentially it's like finding myself yeah and although you're doing that work to sort of like make it perhaps the right word is palatable for the various audiences who might find you in one arena and then rediscover you in a different arena if they can't make that connection if they can't take you seriously as you say in what the blunt question is whose fault is that is it you as a performer or is it actually an unwilling audience that can't make that leap well, uh, okay, as a comedian, you, there's this rule that the audience are never wrong. Yeah. Like, which I think is absolutely right. I think that, that um, 
okay, so the audience don't get you. That's not their their fault. Like that, your humour might not be there to yeah. get a cup of tea. So, um, in regards to that question, um, I would find it hard to put blame on the audience that are watching. But at the same time, it's a thing of um, when you pigeonhole someone. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, I was going to say this later on with a question that I know you've got coming up, which <laughs> is about um, about books and things yeah. like that. Um, there's a book that I've read, and I, I'm reading it to the death. I've read it. Uh, this is like the ninth time I've read it. It's called The Dark Tourist, and it's a book by Dom Jolly. You know the guy with mm. the big yeah. mobile phone and that. Like, yeah, everyone thinks of him as that guy, and he's actually an incredible travel writer, and he's done some brilliant work. And that's the problem that he will more likely be viewed as that comedy character rather than. Even though he's done an entire body of work of written work, yeah. um, people will overlook that because that's more what he's known for. And so that's what I concern myself with. That, like, if I end up getting into one profession over another, yeah. um, will it come back and people say, "Oh, you're that guy that did comedy"? And it, yeah. Uh, like, I think for me, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Like, I, I'm okay dealing with because it it's like, yes, I did. Yeah. Mm. Like. It's and okay it, to try new things. And it's literally, apart from tonight, it's not literally like you're going to be introduced as a comedy gig as that guy that used to drive a forklift. In a strange way, though, I, <laughs> like, I still take pride in that. Yeah, of course. Like, um, so it's like when, when people do, it's like, yeah, I did. I did that for 10 years and I did it well. I just didn't like it. No, no. <laughs> and it is that whole idea, it's all about the Dom Dolly sort of thing. It's almost what's going to be the first line of your victory. Um, and. Don't worry, I'm not going to actually ask that. I'm going to see you tense up to sort of go, right, how do we answer that? Um, but in, in, in comedy and performance and spoken word and trying out that gag, you know, that idea that if the audience uh, are the right, mm-hmm. a joke might not work once, it deserves another test. Mm-hmm. A joke might not work twice, it deserves another test. If it doesn't work three times, it's probably the fault of the joke. And so you get the opportunity to um, try stuff out. How... Are there ideas or concepts you get really married to that you think that the audience need more time on, or how long do you take to reshape an idea? Um, that's a difficult one as well because it depends on the room. Yeah. Like because sometimes you do really rowdy rooms that you know the more edgy junk that usually wouldn't go down too well. Yeah. Will really pick up, and so you play this kind of game of deciding what flies. Yeah. And. So, uh, as well, gentle rewording, mm. like a slight change of a word can impact that joke. The telling of it, like I, I, I live by a rule that uh, the joke that you're telling is essentially bullshit. There is not a single bit funny about that joke when you read it written down. Yeah. Uh, it's how you tell it. So, it's the mannerisms and how you uh, deliver that joke and the pause or without the pause like you go straight into the punchline that is what makes that funny it's in that moment in that situation when they're there and they don't expect or they do expect something and you pull a swerve yes. anything like that so it's the way you perform it I yeah. don't think it's a joke itself no I think that's, that's very fair I think the idea that I, I have a somewhat controversial view that the least important thing about stand up 
is the jokes. Yep. It's about your relationship with the audience. It's about um, your charisma or lack of charisma, because that can be deliberate. Yep. Um, and that whole idea that the way that you own the stage and that we talked about fear earlier and that idea that and we, we talked about at the um, improv, we talked to our students a lot about this, about if you're on the stage, you've earned the right to be on stage, literally by the physicality of being on stage. Mm -hmm. Your audience are going to give you a fair amount of time before they begin to rebel against you. Um, with what you do, Rachel, how often, how much of it is in is complete before you? Because I think arguably comedy is different from poetry or storytelling, and there might, perhaps I'm wrong, there might be more pressure to have it have it arguably more complete before you present it to an audience. I definitely rehearse spoken word a lot before I put it in front of an audience. I um I perform from memory, which I think involves you you know, rehearsing and rehearsing. Yeah. So um, so a lot of it is quite practice. On the other hand, I often have the experience, um, it turns out when I'm angry, I'm funny, so I quite often write a poem which is furiously angry and then I go up on stage to read my very angry poem and, and what I get back is laughter, um, which I'm never expecting. So, so something that is very much my experience is that I find the humour in the poem and I kind of do learn from the audience where the moments of reaction are through, yeah. through performing it. That, I mean, the idea that um, people find anger or fury genuinely quite funny, not to laugh at you, but to laugh with you, that seems to be quite a real sort of thing in terms of it's a genuine cathartic sort of release that people can really recognise that and they go, I mean, oh, I'm thank also you very passive aggressive so so when I'm angry yeah I kind of channel it in that direction which I think passive aggression can be like humor is a flavor of passion yeah. passive aggression yeah. maybe um and we speak about um trying ideas out and uh forming ideas in front of a, a new audience uh, before they're perhaps necessarily the finished product uh you have uh, gone through the spark factory Yes, I have. So uh, tell me a bit more about that. So the Spark Factory, um, the, the two people who are behind it, Simon and Jess, basically took a show to Edinburgh and were sitting discussing how incredibly expensive that had been for them and how, um, how exclusionary that is. Yeah. So as a response to that, they decided to, to start the Spark Factory, um, Spark Factory yeah. as as a way of making it, taking some of the financial load off for new performers to put work on. So there are normally, I think, 10, 10 shows that are part of this little mini festival within the Fringe. Um, all of them are people who are maybe new to Fringe, um, and the idea is that you share the cost of promotion, you share the cost of booking venues, you are cross-promoting each other. I loved being involved in it because I saw some brilliant work last year and this year. I've seen some really interesting pieces and yeah, it is a good thing. Yeah, and it's, um, I think that's important uh, in terms of uh, us as performers to realise that the other performers are not the enemy. Mm. We're in this together, and um, uh, it's very noteworthy if you look at social media or as we come to the Edinburgh Fringe of those companies that are, you know, joyfully promoting 
other people's work and not necessarily their own. That's always quite uh, joyful. Uh, I want to speak to, to you um, about um, you know an other performer because uh, you, you know you are um, you're you're you're, you're you've been a pro wrestler. You, you've been um, sort of um, uh, radio DJ. You are not yet an American comic. No, I think. However, yeah, because I wasn't born American. No, I think that was the problem. Yeah, that was definitely, a, <laughs> definitely a hindrance from the start. From that point, yeah. Yeah, I blame my mother. She's German. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, um, I, I don't think I'll ever be at that kind of level. And but my point being is that you were mistaken for an American comment. Oh yes, yeah. recently. Yeah, that was strange. Um, yeah, a comment that was posted on my page on Facebook. And a lovely lady from America said, like, just watched Ant on the end of this uh, comedy program. It was brilliant. Oh, he was so funny. Or something along those lines. I was like, oh, I'm really appreciative of, of that, that you say that. Like, I've never been to America. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, ah, it must be someone else from Atlanta. <laughs> oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, so there's a doppelganger in yeah. there somewhere. Who shares your name. Yeah. yeah, he probably does better renditions of my material. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that's uh, quite sort of a, a British self deprecating way to sort of look at things. <laughs> um, what, what, what is um, social media for you? Oh, I love social media um, as a way of just putting work out there and getting it in front of an audience really quickly. Um, I share work on Instagram poetry and I just find it the most satisfying way of putting poetry out because yeah. because there's kind of instant instant audience. And I guess there's also a sense in terms of, even now, um, and we've spoken about this in the podcast before when we've had poets on the show before, that some of us may feel somewhat um, like we're not clever enough for poetry and that we might feel somewhat intimidated by poetry. Uh, but I, I guess that placing poetry on a medium like Instagram, that, that just levels it off quite quickly. And has done something really interesting to the world of poetry because it's given it a shake-up that I think that world really needed. Yeah. I, it really makes me sad when I hear people say that they feel poetry isn't for them. And I think they're right that poetry has gone through this phase of being quite exclusionary, which is a shame because I love poetry and I think it is this amazing kind of immediate short art form you can read it in a couple of minutes which is lovely so you've got poets like um holly mcnish i absolutely adore who are sharing work through social media and finding large audiences and showing that poetry does still have relevance if you're talking about things that people want to hear about and i think if you're speaking honestly yeah and poetry now can have a sort of um a different vibe, it doesn't have to be um, what some think of as a sort of fairy flowery wonder to learn anything. It can be again, it can be angry, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it can be angry, it can be um, almost like um, sort of a, like an eight mile sort of clash of you yeah. know between two titans of verbal wordplay, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we're talking about um, clashes of verbal wor- wordplay, you, you've got a show coming up in August, which yes comes uh, under that sort of description. Yeah, it does. It's the first of its type in Brighton. Um, There's a bold phrase. I'm glad yes. we got that on the podcast. This is the first yeah. of its kind in Brighton. Yes, you see all over, and certainly in America, it's a big kind of concept. It's the comedy roast 
battle. Okay. Uh, where you have two comics throwing verbal barbs at each yeah. other, trying to get one up at each other. And it's kind of come over here, and there's a fairly big scene for it up in London and up in the north, but nothing's come down here for yeah. that yet. And so with my shows, because what we like to do is have a monthly theme and do something different every month, this is one of those themes. So it's an opportunity for us to bring a new concept to the comedy scene in Brighton by bringing down a comedy roast battle competition. Fantastic. So what we've got is eight acts and uh, they'll each go one on one heats to face each other until they whittle down to there's only two people left. Uh, so at some point they may battle someone they know, which means the barbs will be absolutely <laughs> brutal. But then other times they'll have to really think on their feet and be really kind of up with the improv to manipulate a barb to work for that yeah. kind of person. So it's really providing an opportunity for the acts to work uh, on, I guess, some of their uh, the situations where if they get heckled, maybe, yeah. uh, and then as well how to work on their wordplay and certain things like that. And then it gives them an opportunity because the winner gets to headline the show. So they have an opportunity to work through the show to headline the show. Excellent. So we have no idea who our yeah, headline sure. is going to be either. So it's a very unique concept. And I felt, you know, as a speaking of imp- improviser, I can think of very few things I find more terrifying uh, than that sort of experience. I don't know how I'd survive. I don't know, how, Rachel, how you'd feel. Improv. Oh, God, I am terrified of improv. Yeah. I, I like to know my lines and have rehearsed everything yeah. before I go on stage. Yeah. Not my cup of tea. So the, the idea of sort of doing a comedy roast battle where you have to sort of like throw insults to... Yeah. Also, also not really my cup of tea. Yeah. I'm, I'm more about the love than about yeah. the barbs. Having said that, I mean, I, I kind of get... Maybe I'm trying to make it more flowery than it is, but I imagine that... Uh, you know, if you and I, we're not gonna, but if you and I did a, like a, a comedy roast battle sort of thing where we're throwing barbs, it's gonna work better if we genuinely have affection and love for one another. And that's where, you know, we can be working together. So I can, you can feed me a line that gives things so even stronger back to you, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And there's gonna be some of that, certainly on the show. Um, I think when I say the barbs, they're gonna be thrown in a lot of ways out of love and respect. Yeah. It is going to be that um, almost like with the improv thing where you you throw the ball out so that yes. the next person can hit it. So it's um, there's going to be a lot of build up, and they're going to work together each act um, to to make it a funny show. So although uh, from the offset it will seem like it could be offensive and quite brutal, at the same time it's almost taking an element of the stand-up shows and other comedy shows that are on uh, where you'll do your set and maybe you'll say a few things that might be offensive to the audience and suddenly we're turning it this way yeah yeah and so for the audience it's less uh intrusive uh, it's less attacking them yeah and it's more being able to have a laugh at these professionals sure. having uh, in-joke digs at each yeah. other, but making it entertaining like, in a strange way. So it's like a safe f- space version of when all the kids in school get into a circle going, fight, 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 fight. <laughs> kind of, yeah. kind of, yeah. But we hope that doesn't happen because uh, <laughs> I don't have insurance. No, no. no. <laughs> and when it, tell us uh, the details. Tell us when think, and where. Yep, so it's August 1st and it's upstairs at the Carolina Brunswick pub, which is on Ditching Road. It's opposite the level and it's £5 entry, £4 concessions and here's a nice little treat I'm going to throw in. I haven't announced this yet but I'm going to announce it now. Uh, We did it last month. 
Um, this is going out there for all NHS staff, free entry. Fantastic. Do you have any other sort of um, shows uh, or gigs, or even the, the, your, your radio hours that come up that you want to give us a shout out to? Um, well, at the moment, the radio stuff is on a weird kind of hiatus. We're still trying to fit some of the slots in because we've yeah. got a lot of work to be done. But um, yeah, I mean, we've, I've, I've got a few comedy shows coming up. I've got one next week, uh, which is Wednesday the 25th. I believe 25th of July, and that's going off um, at Constantinople, yeah. I think, like, uh, along uh, Western Road. Uh, that's a new night, actually. Yeah. It's um, run by Matt Whistler, who's famous for being the guy who did the Bird is, Bird is a Word song, Naked, at the bus stop. Yeah, yeah this well, guy we, we remember this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a local celebrity. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, he, he's now actually, uh, he's gone into doing a lot of art. That's right. Stuff, but he's come back to doing some uh, comedy shows and putting on events. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that one. Um, and other than that, September... Uh, again, my own show uh, where we get a bunch of acts in, we're doing a very special one. We did this last year, it was called Sketch Timber, where we get all sketch and character comedy acts. So it's something very different from your bog standard stand-up, and we've always been about that, getting in different acts, because we're never just stand-up, we are comedy, and there's so many different aspects of comedy, and we want to celebrate that. Last year was fantastic, we had seven absolutely brilliant acts, and we've got seven absolutely brilliant acts this year. We've got uh, two sketch acts, an improv musical act, another music act, a couple of character acts, and a few other strange avant-garde type acts in between it's going to be something completely different from any other comedy night in town and that's sketch timber uh, that is uh yeah same venue uh carolina brunswick that's on september 5th and again uh that starts at 8 p.m and five pound entry fantastic and uh Rachel, uh do you you've got um 10 mistakes Yes. Uh, although, do, do we book you for that? Yes, so uh, 10 mistakes, I'm looking for hosts who have living rooms. Yeah. Um, and in the current housing climate, that's becoming increasingly <laughs> rare, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's, it's an interesting one, because uh, I kind of cheerfully was like, I'll come round to your living rooms. You, of course, have to have a living room that's yeah. big enough to fit people in and, and have a living room. Yeah. Um, although I have done a show in a back garden, so I'm flexible. Yes, I, yeah. I, I can go other places. Our interpretation of what a living room actually is can be... Yeah, yeah. open to interpretation. But that's, that's how the show works, is a, is a host invites me round to theirs, and then they invite their mates. Yeah. Um, Although I'm thinking that I'm maybe going to have to have one in my living room at the end of the tour to round it all off. It's a nice poetry stuff. <laughs> in, in, in many senses. It seems appropriate, yeah. and uh, and then I get to invite my mates, which would be a nice thing to do. Yeah. And um, do you have any other shows or gigs coming up? Um, I don't actually. Yeah. It's all been ten, about ten mistakes. I've been so focused on ten mistakes, and then after ten mistakes, I've got to finish. The flipping novel, which I've been working on. For Tell me about years. the flipping novel. <laughs> <laughs> the flipping novel. Um, That's not its work in progress title. No, it's um, yeah, it's under a working title at the moment, which I'm slightly embarrassed to, to talk about. You, you um, don't have to tell us what title. But it's it's a retelling of the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf. Oh yes. Um, so it's set kind of just pre-Viking era, and it takes. The, the kind of major female character from the story who is a queen yeah. and she's quite interesting. Her name means foreign slave, oh. so I find that fascinating in itself. And then in Beowulf, she makes this really interesting speech where she 
contradicts what the king has just said, stood up and kind of speechified about. So the novel yeah. is exploring her story. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna. The next thing I'm gonna say is wrong to some degree. So uh, uh, help me out. <laughs> Beowulf is. It's not the first in the old English language poem, but what, what, what am I struggling for there? Yeah, pretty much. You're you're not far off. Okay. They they kind of say that Beowulf is the first poem written in the English language. I should, yeah. Um, not English that you would recognise. That's why I was a bit um, hesitant. Yeah. It's re- it's Anglo-Saxon, so it's uh, yeah. Um, I came across. I started writing the novel because, as part of my highly useful English degree, <laughs> I was learning to translate Anglo-Saxon, yeah. um, which is what modern day English grows out of yeah. but it changes significantly when the French arrive excellent um, I, I, I was thinking of puns to that but <laughs> post Brexit no pun really yeah. lands well yeah. on that sort of thing um, what we do um, tend to uh, ask our guests at the um, Cast Iron Theatre podcast is um, obviously you spend some time in Brighton you hang out in Brighton and we don't want to invite stalkers with this next question, but when you are being, when you're work, working on your flipping novel or um, <laughs> you are working on the next idea, is there a bar or coffee shop or cake shop, cakes, where you <laughs> would like to, where you tend to hang out, that you want to give a shout out to? Um, for me, I don't really frequent too many places and actually sit on my own and think. Sure. The only place that I do that is on the bus. Yeah. And so I, I end up coming up with these like, just incredibly random ideas and prop based gags and, and whatnot like while I'm on the bus and I go, Ah, oh, I can like nip to this shop and, yeah. and and grab something for that. I know exactly how that's gonna work and so yeah, that's the only oh, place okay. I really do it. I see. Um uh, yes, uh, Rachel, is there a place that you still um, hang out? Mostly one of the libraries actually, mm. um, Hove or or the big Jubilee yeah. library where they have the nice desks that look out on the yes. square. Yeah. yeah. I was asked recently or uh, was it like a, a, a pop quiz question of how many Libraries there are in Brighton Hove, so going as far as in the shore of the How many libraries are there in Brighton Hove, do you think? Oh, they've narrowed down a few. They so have? Hmm, I'll take a guess and say that there's only 15. 15, what do you think? Oh, I'm counting them through in my head because yeah, yeah. I know a lot of them. Well, um, I'm <laughs> counting them back to you. Uh, how many? Uh, going, that's probably eight. Eight? Twelve. Twelve. Twelve was my guess, incidentally. Um, Eight. Eight. eight, so we've got two for eight, uh, one for, uh, well, two, because my guess would have been 12, two for 12, one for 15. I, w- and I want 12 too, 12. One of you is correct, it's oh. Ant. Oh. Got 15, yeah, 15. Alive I'm here all week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that, that, that's your sort of your nice hangout joint too, is one yeah. of the libraries. I love a library. It feels like a school and my brain just goes, here is a sure. place where yeah. we do work. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting that you say um, one of libraries. You don't particularly frequent a single library. You sort of, um, do libraries pull you in as you pass them by? or? I also do a bit of teaching. So okay. I'm teaching creative writing. So I'm all over town doing the teaching and I go to whichever library is nearest to where I'm teaching that day. Here's a question which I will comfortably say to you that your answer may well be cut and edited mm-hmm. as a teacher of creative writing. Mm. And I'm putting pressure on you because you might have to feel the need to be overly diplomatic. Oh, God. And you, you can see why I'm going with this. Um, I can't. Where can, are we going? Can, can it occasionally, not for any fault of your own, can it occasionally not be taught? I... For whatever reason, maybe the person's not listening or... I hugely disagree with that point of view. Yeah. Lots and lots of writers say that writing can't be taught yeah. 
Um, but my background is actually that I was a primary school teacher before I was a writer. And in my opinion, if you're someone who's sitting there saying writing can't be taught, it's because you're not a very good teacher. Yeah. Um, that, that kind of genuine talent, this is what people often say, is a different thing. But, but writing is a craft and you can absolutely teach people the, the skills that make yeah. you a better writer. And the students that I teach, I've had students who've kind of come for year on year and year. And sometimes, what you were saying, sometimes students just don't listen. You do, you do say something to someone a lot of times, like maybe you need to describe the room that this is happening in. Sure, yeah. um, but eventually they get there, and that's what I really enjoy about teaching, when, when someone eventually gets to the thing that you've been trying yeah. to teach them for a while. Yeah. To make a link between the two uh, things that we discussed today, I, I found that improvisation, which is largely about um, live performance and, mm. and reacting to another person uh, that's made me a better writer which is largely about being on my own with a piece of paper or a computer but that idea of pursuing the next idea having curiosity about where it's going to lead you and yeah. not being afraid of that as mm. well and exploring that idea um, where um, there in your life we, we, we spring this question in your life back in your history back in your childhood you may have had an idea or an invention or you may have created Star Wars but somebody else got to that before you um, Anne has that ever happened to you? Probably um, the many times I've been hit over the head with uh, objects that I'd rather not have been hit over the head with maybe. you're not even speaking metaphorically are you? <laughs> no, that's, no that's absolutely true um, basically yeah, I probably have. I remember as a kid I had a very active imagination and it's something that thankfully my daughter has shown incredible signs of as well, which yeah. is wonderful. So I get to kind of relive that through her. Yeah. She tells incredible stories and that. But I'm sure at some point I probably did come up with something. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember it, which is a shame because I could be a millionaire. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Has your daughter come up with like a fantastic story or invention? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My favourite one was um, what was it? Uh, she said um, something about um, she she told this story like a fairy tale. I can't remember the exact details, sure. but it ended up with someone dying, and she said like, uh, and they all lived lived sadly ever oh. never after so they, they all lived sadly never after that's, that's a thing of beauty <laughs> yeah um, she's five yeah. <laughs> i was overhearing or being told um an overheard conversation between two like five-year-old girls four-year-old girls who were walking outside not wearing shoes and one of them said to the other oh, um we're, we're walking barefoot barefoot <laughs> that means we're not going to wear anything on our feet like the bears do, <laughs> which I think is quite lovely. Um, That's amazing. Rachel, have you, what, what's your multi-million um, pound idea? It's not a multi-million pound idea, but me and my big sister did invent communism together once. <laughs> <laughs> we were walking along um, through a woods. And, it's literally and not a million dollar idea, isn't it? <laughs> talking about how wouldn't it be better if everyone just, if all of the wealth was distributed equally yeah. and everyone shared and, um, and my dad was wandering along behind us kind of sniggering quietly and eventually pointed out that's communism girls and... Yeah. Doesn't work. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh gosh, that's a controversial thing to say in Brighton. That's my um, Tory 
telegraph reading dad speaking. Well, <laughs> I, I think we worked out that, you know, to take um, the telegraph political cartoon to its extreme, we worked out the reason that communism doesn't work is because there's an older man saying that it won't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to, you know, rip the piss out of your dad. You know. <laughs> um, and we've sort of touched on this before. Uh, it may well be that you've got a, a, an additional answer for this. Um, but are there podcasts that you're listening at the moment, uh, films, uh, box sets, books that you're reading at the moment that you want to... Our lives will be enriched for knowing about. And? Mm. So, uh, for me, trying to find time to watch anything at length at the moment or listen to anything at length is quite difficult. Um, I think, again, like I, I said earlier about um, Dom Jolly's A Dark Tourist, it's an incredible book, um, really enjoying reading that over again, uh, because what he does is he goes to places that aren't places that are known for tourism. Which is why it's called The Dark Tourist. But they have a dark element of tourism to them. So, for instance, the place where JFK got shot, yeah. mm. it attracts a hell of a lot of people to go there and look at a site where someone was shot. And, and so there's a lot of these places, and, and he goes all over the world. He goes to Iran, where he gets to go uh, skiing. And everyone's like, well, you can't go skiing in Iran. Why wouldn't you go to Switzerland? Yeah. There's quite a funny story with when he gets stuck at the airport, and they're questioning him about that. Why don't you come here for that? Um, so, yeah, there's all these brilliant stories within that, and it, it's just incredible. Uh, I, I saw a video the other day that very much encompassed everything that that book was about because it was a Nigerian woman talking about the single story. Mm. And she says about uh, the single story. When, when, when that's all you hear about one place, that's all you know. Ah, mm. you know? Yeah. And so, like, with Nigeria, all they knew was, uh, like, because she went to America, this Nigerian woman, went to America to get to university, and all these people knew in America at the time was, oh, your, uh, your men over there beat you, you're all poor, you're poverty, all the yeah. children, mm. and, like, got dysentery and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, well, actually, no. And she told a joke, and she said, like, well, it's funny because I had the same thing when I read American Psycho. (laughs) 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 So it's very much that, um, based around that, essentially, this dark tourist, because your eyes are just completely closeted to what you see on the Mm. news or in Mm. general kind of media, and you're unaware of just how much... Uh, beauty there is and then how much strange beauty there can be in these places of the almost darkness and like, yeah. like the killing fields in Cambodia and places yeah. like that there's uh, the idea of a single story that's a fascinating thing because it can be quite a wide thing or quite mm. a narrow thing you know how often have we been told about somebody at work for the first time before we met them and we don't oh that was, that's one that's lazy yeah and yeah. that informs our uh Information. I remember reading uh, a biography of uh, Brecht, uh, the playwright Brecht, uh, and about his childhood, and talking about um, a village uh, near him, a sort of beautiful, sort of um, gorgeous little village that has a little pub and some sort of uh, fields and stuff, and quite deliberately the the, uh, description left it to the end to mention that it was Dakar. (laughs) And the whole idea that you could get posted, it was genuinely a tourist destination before its dark history. Came that now. That's all we know about it. Yeah. Um, um, 
Rachel, uh, is there sort of a podcast or film or book? Book and a TV series, which I'm so excited to talk about because I'm loving, I loved the book and then they made a TV series of it, which I think might be even better um, unusually. So the book is Dietland by Sarai Walker um, and they just started making a series on Amazon Prime and it is, the basic premise is similar to The Power by Naomi Alderton, it's the question of what if women started really pushing back against the violence that they've experienced. The protagonist of Dietland is Plum, who is um, an obese woman, and she is befriended by um, feminists, kind of led down this feminist rabbit hole, and there's a a feminist terrorist group which is operating called uh, Jennifer, and um, are murdering rapists and pornographers. And I don't necessarily kind of agree with the conclusion that the solution to violence is more violence, but it's a a book that I really enjoyed it because as I was reading it, I kind of realized Plum starts off wanting to have gastric band surgery and and you realise that the end of this story is not Plum becoming the thin, beautiful woman yeah. who she longs to be. You realise it's taking you somewhere different and yeah. far more interesting. Yeah. So I, I just love the the fury of that book. Yeah. Um, I found it invigorating. It kind of reminds you speaking about the power that where I when I read that what I found quite enjoyable about that it re- read to me very much like a, um, a Stephen King sort of novel but one that joyfully absolutely wasn't for me the gags in it the sort of the, 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 the turn of phrase or, oh I'm I'm getting to read this but I, I, I'm not the intended audience mm. and it was something quite delicious about that yeah. and I imagine that this is similar I th- yeah it sounds like we're having the kind of flip side of the same experience that for you it's refreshing to not not be centred and for me it's speaking as a white straight man (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. this this wasn't made for me I feel I I get to enjoy I get to enjoy that yeah Yeah. Um, whereas whereas for me Dietland was the first book I think I'd read that really really spoke about things that I think women have been silently seething about for a very long time Um, it feels yeah. like it's an important book, an important TV series. Yeah, it's it's one of those books that I've rushed around and recommended to people ever since I yeah. read it, and yeah. and one of those you must read this book. Fantastic. Yeah. So that's um, on our summer reading list. Um, and I'm going to give you an opportunity just to, as we get to the last couple of minutes of the podcast, to just um, memory check us again for the upcoming gigs and dates that you've got coming up, particularly the one on the first. Yep, so August 1st, uh, that is called Hashtag Battle Royale. It's our comedy roast battle competition, and that's August 1st, Carolina Brunswick, 8pm, £5 entry, £4 concessions, free for NHS staff. Uh, we've also got a gig on Wednesday, July 25th, which is at Constantinople on Western Road, and that is 8pm uh, start, I believe, as well. I think that's free entry, so... Come along to that one, that's a brilliant showcase show of local talent, it's going to be incredible. Um, and of course Sketch Timber, which is in September, September 5th, again Carolina Brunswick, 8pm, £5 entry, £4 concessions. And Rachel, if we want to uh, book you, we will need to find you on, on the social media thing that we're talking about, where would we find you? Um, you can find me at rachelshora.com and you can contact me 
through the website and if you would like to host then I would flipping love to hear from you because it's always really exciting when somebody else offers their living room. Fantastic. So, yeah. What I, I realised is we come into the last couple of seconds of the show is that I didn't really implicitly ask what the show is. We spoke about, you know, conversations that, that women have, but I'm aware that, that may, we, we may not be being kind to our audience in a way to hook them in. How would you talk about the show if we were going to book you? Um, I'll, do, I'll do my promo yeah, verb, yeah. shall I? So, Ten Mistakes Every Girl Makes in Her Twenties is a darkly humorous spoken word show with conversation about making mistakes and feeling like a mistake. Yeah, and only in those mistakes. And turn them into an hour-long show. Yeah. Yeah, good. <laughs> Basically, being, being fucked up as performance art, which is pretty much what my 20s were. Yeah, I, I think if we're all rational, sensible, well-adjusted people, we wouldn't be on a stage doing a podcast <laughs> in Brighton <laughs> in late July. Late, yes, it is. It's late July, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. When did that yeah. happen? When did that happen? What a year this has been. What a year it will continue to be. So thank you for coming along to tonight's podcast. Our guests tonight have been Ant McEwen and Rachel Shorer. Yeah. Continue to find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and everywhere else. We will be doing more podcasts at the Edinburgh Fringe. If you want to be a guest on those podcasts and chat about your show, please find us on all those social media things we speak of. Thank you and good night. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. And edited by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Armand. Find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and our website, castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening.